Let me start this morning with a question, and that is this. How do you feel about the future? How do you feel about the future? Are you hopeful or fearful about the years ahead? Has that feeling changed in recent years, or has it stayed the same? I remember as a child in the early 1980s, uh, hearing about the threat of nuclear war. Uh, there were dramas about war on TV. Uh, the news was filled with reports about the vast arsenals of nuclear weapons held by the USA and the USSR. I, I recall being fascinated, but also a little scared, about what could happen. But I am hard-pressed to remember any time since then when uncertainty about the future has been so pronounced as it is today. Three strands to that uncertainty come to mind. First of all, there is geopolitical uncertainty. That is uncertainty about politics and power in the world around us. However you and I may have voted in the EU referendum, and I know people in this church voted different ways, I think we'll all agree that we're in for some short-term uncertainty as our exit from the EU is negotiated. And no one quite knows what our future looks like. But the geopolitical uncertainty goes deeper than that. Just as a lay observer, I see partnerships which have held countries together since World War II coming under increasing pressure. And those in Western governments, sometimes called the elite, becoming the focus of increasingly hostile criticism throughout the Western world. I think the tectonic plates of geopolitics are moving, and we don't know where they're going to settle. Secondly, there's uncertainty in our world about security. I don't need to say much here other than just to remind us of the ongoing volatility and instability of the Middle East and its impact upon whole world peace. And the desire of Islamic, radical Islamic extremists to strike not only against their fellow Muslims, but also against soft civilian targets in the West. It is unclear what the strategy is to defeat IS and if it will only simply retreat and reform elsewhere. There is geopolitical uncertainty. There's security uncertainty. Thirdly, I want to suggest there's actually uncertainty about the whole idea of human progress itself. You see, since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, we have lived with a view that as humankind, we are gradually going to continue to make progress and advancements in terms of society. And in terms of technology, that's certainly the case. Every year, we're able to communicate more easily and quickly. Gadgets are becoming smaller and cleverer to the point where only children can operate them. Is that my experience? Improvements in healthcare have been vast in recent decades. Life expectancy is increasing. But there are some clouds on the horizon of human progress. The number of people able to afford their own home is decreasing. Younger people are leaving university with more debts than ever before. Retirement incomes will not be the same in the future generations compared to the present generation. Some people's incomes are going to be squeezed, we heard this week, for the next 10 years. And that's not even looking at the softer, but arguably more important indices like the quality and stability of family life, which is under significant threat. Now listen, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom here. I'm simply trying to note what I think probably most of us sense. I, I heard one guy this week who, in this church who's far more experienced than I have, simply saying in all his life, 
He's never known the future look more unstable. But perhaps you don't need all this mention of uncertainty on a geopolitical or security or progress level. For you, uncertainty is much closer to home. For you, uncertainty may be a health problem that won't go away, a job that's hanging by a thread, a relationship that seems broken, a parent or a child for whom worry alone won't fix it. Perhaps the future seems a scary place, or at least a place you look at with some trepidation. So I want to ask this morning, how should we look to the future? How should we look to the future for me, for you, for us? Well, that's the question we're going to be taking to the Scriptures this morning as we look together at this chapter from the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. Just a reminder, we've been following the story of Joseph, this term from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, We've seen Joseph attacked and sold by his brothers, but through a wonderful set of circumstances, he's been reunited with them and his father when Joseph was number two in Egypt and his brothers came to Egypt to buy grain. Now the family's together again. There's been much rejoicing all round. But now Jacob, Joseph's father, is nearing the end of his life. And so Joseph leaves his political responsibilities and comes to his father's side. And as he does so, he finds his father, Jacob, looking to the future. And it's in how Jacob looks to the future and encourages Joseph to do likewise that I believe there's a really valuable message for us this morning. I think the message is not, hide under the duvet and I'll hope it'll go away. It's about a message of looking to God, whose plan and character and ways can be uniquely relied upon. So please turn with me in your Bible. So Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48 is on page 54. There's a little bit of a blue batting order that shows you where we're going. Genesis chapter 48, you'll see that I'm suggesting we look at this passage under three headings. First of all, I want to suggest that Joseph is called to trust in God's plan. Secondly, I want to suggest that Joseph is called to remember God's character. And thirdly, I want to suggest that Joseph is called to recognize God's ways. So first of all, Joseph is called to trust in God's plan. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. They set the scene for us. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on his bed. So here we have Jacob, also confusingly called Israel, by the way, uh, is clearly making an effort. You can imagine him kind of sitting up on his bed, summoning all his strength to talk to Joseph about the future. But the interesting thing is that Jacob starts by referring to the past. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. What Jacob is doing here, Jacob is reminding Joseph of the covenant which was originally given to Abraham and which had been renewed with Jacob at Bethel, also called Luz. You might remember the story of Jacob and his dream and the ladder. That's the one he's referring to here. It's there in Genesis 28. 
the covenant with Abraham was about three things. It was about descendants for Abraham, who didn't have any kids. It was about a land to live in and a community of blessing to others. So Abraham was being promised a family, a place to live, and a purpose to bless others. And it's this covenant, it's this kind of core agreement of God with Abraham and his descendants that Jacob goes back to as he looks to the future. It's almost as if he's saying to Joseph, yes, I'm about to die, but don't forget God's plan. And he says, you can trust in it just like I did. You can be confident that God will be at work in that same big picture that he gave to Abraham. And in fact, Joseph has seen this, hasn't he? In his own life, the way that God has saved his people from famine by letting Joseph go to Egypt and bringing his people there to be saved. Joseph is saying God's big plan that had been revealed to Abraham could be trusted. Now listen, we actually have a bigger plan of God's big picture. We have a bigger view of God's big picture than Jacob did that day. For yes, God's plan did involve building a people, giving them a land, and calling them to be a blessing to others. But it didn't end there. Because God always knew that through his chosen people, he would send a saviour to bring the blessing to the whole world that his chosen people never could. From the house of David, Jesus was born. He lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended, and one day he will come again to reign supreme over a new and restored creation. That's the big plan. And I think it's really important that we have a really clear understanding of what God's big picture plan is. Bishop Joe, uh, the new Bishop of Dorking, was speaking last week at our 11.15 congregation, and she was kind of bringing to the end our Connecting with Christianity little series of get-togethers that we've been having, based on four popular hymns. And she used those hymns to kind of tell us and remind us of the big picture of God's plan through four words. Number one, God creates. Number two, God cares. Number three, God dies. Number four, God reigns. Number one, God creates. God created the world and all there is. Secondly, God cares. God cared for the world even though human beings decided to go our own way. Thirdly, God sent his son into the world to die for our sins and bring us back to God. And fourthly, God reigns. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand from where he reigns and from where he will one day come again. God creates, God cares, God dies, God reigns. Annabelle reminds us in our prayers, today is Advent Sunday, in which we look forward to Jesus' coming. But what we tend to forget, that Advent is about looking forward to Jesus' coming in two ways. Yes, it's about looking forward to his coming into the world for the first time in Bethlehem, which we celebrate at Christmas. But secondly, though, Advent is about looking forward to Jesus' second coming, when he will come again to judge the world and usher in a new creation. And that's the bit that we tend to forget. God has a plan that was gloriously revealed in the birth of Jesus. 
but it will be even more wonderfully displayed when Jesus comes again, and that is what Advent is about. The bunch of us who, were, who gathered together for morning prayer in the, in the prayer room for every morning, this last couple of weeks we've been working through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, looking at the first book, looking at the last book, reminded me of a wonderful story um, that I, I shared with them, actually. Um, I was, um, probably about 20 years ago, I, I, uh, I had a conversation on a train in the Czech Republic. I always remember train journeys, and this one's no exception. Um, I was a pretty new Christian then, and uh, I was reading my Bible on the train, which I have to say is a jolly good way of striking up conversations with people, so do encourage it. Um, I was reading my Bible on the train, and the chap opposite me engaged me in conversation. And it turned out he was an American preacher off to speak at some meeting or another. And I said, what are you preaching on? And he said, I'm preaching on the book of Revelation. I was a bit of a sort of junior Christian by that point, and this was unknown territory to me. I said, crumbs, I said. That sounds a bit sort of uh, hard. Uh, Isn't it a bit demanding? And he said, not at all, he said. Because the book of Revelation reminds me of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said it with an American accent. Um, but, but he was absolutely right. I've never forgotten those words. The book of Revelation reminds us of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's absolutely spot on. For all its complexity, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, has one clear message, perhaps with two phrases. One message, which is that God wins and Jesus is Lord. God wins and Jesus is Lord. That is where human history is heading. A new creation ruled over by Jesus Christ where sin and death and tears and pain are a thing of the past. That is God's big plan. And we are called to trust in it just like Jacob called Joseph to do. People sometimes talk, have you heard the phrase, the arc of human history? People generally use it to describe the particular interest that they have that it will certainly happen one day. So whether that's the Western liberal democracy, and they say the arc of human history is inexorably heading in this particular direction. I I want to say that history teaches us that empires come and go. Political systems come and go. The arc of human history is found in Jesus Christ. What can be relied upon is God's plan for a world fulfilled in Jesus Christ. My my colleagues on the team here and and my family will tell you what I say when things are looking bleak, when something has happened that was really not according to my plan. Never mind, I say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I think that's actually what it is to trust in God's plan. Just saying, Jesus is Lord is an act of faith and trust. I have prayed it by the bedsides of people who are dying, in hospital with a poorly child, after an email with tragic news. Jesus is Lord. That is God's plan. And that is as true today as it ever was. And in a more complex world, it's great news. Joseph was called to trust in God's big plan. We're called to do the same. Jesus is Lord. Secondly, though, Joseph is called to remember God's character. 
Uh, The story continues in verses 5 and 6 as Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own, meaning that they will have equal standing in the inheritance that will be true for all Jacob's sons. This effectively means, if you kind of do the maths, that Joseph's family receives double the blessing of Joseph's other brothers because he's got two representatives among Jacob's sons. And this is going to be important for the future of the people of Israel. But, but for now, I just want to look at what Jacob says as he blesses both these boys, as he puts his hands out. We'll come to the crossing hands bit in a moment, okay? Just, just hold on. Let's look at what Jacob says as he blesses Manasseh and Ephraim. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. I think this is a really, really poignant moment. Because once again, Jacob is looking back, but he's not looking back this time to the big picture of God, you know, the big plan and covenant. He's just looking back to his experience of God. And he uses two words to describe his experience of God. He describes God as his shepherd and his angel. There's actually some crossover between these terms, but as I looked at their use in the Bible, I think Jacob is referring to the one who has cared for him, who has fed him, who has guided him and protected him. A God whose character has been one of love in its fullest sense of the word. Jacob is not looking back on a life without very significant challenges. But he can see God's care and guidance and protection throughout. And here's the really key thing. Jacob calls to mind these characteristics of God, his guidance, his protection, because he believes that God's character does not change. And so the God who has been his shepherd and his angel can be exactly the same for Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob remembers his experience of God in the past because he believes God's character will be the same in the future. So please listen very clearly to this extremely good news. That in a changing world, God's character does not change. In a changing world... God's character does not change. If you throw in your lot with God, if you bow the knee and say you can't do this life thing on your own, you can know the unchanging character of God who guides and leads and cares and protects. You will never be unloved. You will never be alone you will never be lost. Because Jesus is not just Lord, he is also love. God's love in human form and God's love for you and me. For those of us here this morning who have walked with the Lord for many years or perhaps even just a few, I wonder if we can do the same as Jacob and call to mind the character of God that we have known and experienced. Perhaps like Jacob, it's God as shepherd, his care and guidance and protection. Perhaps it's his patience or his forgiveness or just his unbelievable grace to sinners such as you and me. 
perhaps you're like me and you find it sometimes hard to remember what we've experienced of God's character because the past is like another country. Perhaps his guidance in the past is forgotten as we contemplate a big choice before us. Perhaps his protection in the past is overlooked as we feel in some present danger. Perhaps his care in the past is neglected as we feel alone in the present. I think it's really good to do what Jacob did and just call to mind what we've experienced of God in the past. Thank you, Lord, that in a changing world you do not change. Thank you, Lord, that you will never stop being the shepherd who cares for me, guides me, and protects me. Thank you that although there are tough times in the future, yes, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Joseph, that day kneeling by his father's bed, is called to remember and trust in God's plan. He's called to remember God's unchanging character. And thirdly, he's called to recognize God's ways. Because now we come to that fascinating detail of the crossed hands. I wonder if you picked up what was going on uh, as we heard it read. What happens is Joseph puts Manasseh and Ephraim at Jacob's right and left hand, respectively. So so Manasseh was the older one, Ephraim was the younger one, and uh, therefore Manasseh was going to get the senior blessing that came through the right hand, Ephraim through the left hand. And that was the custom of the day. The thing is that when it comes to the blessing, Jacob does that. And he crossed his hands over, he put his right hand on Ephraim instead of Manasseh, and uh, his left hand on Manasseh. And that confuses and irks Joseph, who, who, who seeks to intervene in verses 17 to 18. But, but, but actually, Jacob holds his ground uh, and explains what he clearly feels led to do. I know, my son, I know. Now, on one level, this is Jacob revisiting that moment when he received his father's senior blessing instead of his older brother Esau. So, in one sense, this is kind of history turning full circle. But on another level, I think there's something more significant going on here. It is Jacob living out in his actions a truth about God and his ways, which he has come to know and he wants Joseph to remember too. And that's this. God does things sometimes that we do not expect. Or put simply, God's ways are not our ways. Here, the younger son receives the senior blessing, but the theme is continued throughout Scripture. David was the youngest brother, and yet he was anointed king. Cyrus was a foreign ruler, yet was used to return God's people to Jerusalem. Jesus brought about the liberty for God's people by enduring a Roman execution. The church in Corinth was a collection of people, most of whom were nobodies in society, but for whom God was making them somebody. You see, God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes God does this and does the things we least expect. Now, that might be a bit of confusing, like it was for, Jake, for Joseph that day. But it's also a sign of hope. God may work in unlikely places and through unlikely people. That could be a sign of hope for our nation, our world, and our wider church. It's certainly a sign of hope for us. 
let's not restrict the ways or places in which we think God can be at work. Whatever the uncertainty you are facing, God can be at work. As a pastor, it's my privilege to see God at work in some unlikely places in you, in bereavement, in unemployment, in depression. Now, I'm not saying these are good or things that we would wish for, but God has been at work in an unlikely place. You see, Joseph thought he knew best. He thought he could arrange the things of God. He had to learn he could not, and that God was going to be at work in his sons in ways that he hadn't imagined. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know the God who holds the future. And I know his plan, his big plan stretching back to be creation and to be completed in a glorious advent when Jesus comes again is true. I know his character, the shepherd God who cares, guides, and protects. And I know his ways, not my ways, certainly, but a God who works sometimes in unlikely ways and unlikely places, but praise God that he does. By the way, that doesn't make uncertainty all right for me. I still lay awake at night worrying usually trying to sort things out instead of believing that God can. But underneath the uncertainty is a faith that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus loves and cares for me, and there is no place where Jesus can't be at work. I don't know what uncertainty you are facing this morning. It may be that big stuff in the world around us. It may be local stuff right in front of you. Whatever it is, I believe you are called with Joseph to trust in God's plan, to remember God's character, and to recognize God's ways. So let me invite you to consider some questions this morning. First of all, do you know and trust the plan of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ? Are you willing to say... In every circumstance, that which Christians have said down the ages, Jesus is Lord. Secondly, do you remember and hold on to the character of God as the shepherd who cares and guides and protects his sheep? And thirdly, do you recognize God's ways that they may not be as we might expect? but God can work in ways we have not even begun to imagine. Can I pray for us? Perhaps we just want to think about those questions for a moment and consider our response.